Welcome to Outdoor by 4 Magazine's audio edition of Issue 48. For those unfamiliar with Outdoor by 4, the magazine began its journey as a fully independent, vehicle-based adventure and outdoors lifestyle publication in 2013. Since that time, Outdoor by 4 has been the catalyst for expanding the reach of overland and vehicle-based adventure travel into the outdoors market, with the focus not only on the mode of travel, whether a 4x4, motorcycle, bicycle, or by foot, but also on the adventures themselves and the people who live them. In this issue, you'll hear a sampling of stories from the print edition, including The Dispatch by Outdoor by Four's editor-in-chief. Cohen Wubbles and Karen Marushke-Viss take us on an overland adventure through Tajikistan. Ben Easley introduces us to the new California Crest Trail. Frank Ledwell tells us about Outdoor by Four's Project Himalayan Adventure Motorcycle. And Andrea Ledwell explores the healing power of solo travel. There are also a variety of additional stories in this issue you can read by picking up a copy anywhere books are sold, or by subscribing and receiving a copy as part of your subscription order by visiting www.outdoorx4.com. We hope you enjoy this issue of Outdoor by 4 Magazine. The Dispatch by Frank Ludwell, Editor-in-Chief. Over the years, I've been asked countless times what the first item should be after buying a four-wheel drive vehicle for the first time. The question is always followed by listing off parts upgrades such as suspension along with larger tires and wheels. So when I respond by telling people to skip the parts and instead learn to drive their vehicle, I'm oftentimes responded to with a look of bewilderment and outright confusion. My first suggestion has always been to determine how you plan to use your vehicle. Once this is established, learn to operate the vehicle so that you'll always be prepared to tackle most any situation you may encounter while on your travels. This includes, but is not limited to, the following. Take an off-highway driving class from a respected and certified instructor. The value of learning how to drive off pavement and the techniques you will learn are invaluable and will make your travels safer and more enjoyable. There are a number of highly qualified off-highway driving instructors throughout the U.S., as well as internationally, and a little research online can yield many opportunities based on where you're located. Driving schools such as 7P Overland, Barlow Adventures, Off-Road Safety Academy, and Overland Experts, to name a few, are well-versed with decades of experience with classes available in a variety of settings to maximize the learning experience. Next, learn basic first aid. Even if it's limited to understanding how to administer CPR and properly bandage cuts, scrapes, or broken appendage. Being prepared for the worst but expecting the best is important, especially when undergoing a, an extended self-sufficient journey in a remote location. Once you learn first aid, make sure to always carry with you a quality kit. Companies such as Outer Limit Supply and Adventure Medical Kits offer a variety of options to complement your needs in a worst-case scenario. Additionally, equip your vehicle as necessary. Modern vehicles are surprisingly capable in their stock form. For example, a Wrangler Rubicon without modification or the new Ineos Grenadier, which you can learn about in this issue, can pretty much get you anywhere you want to go. That's not to say certain modifications can make traveling in your vehicle easier, more comfortable, and even safer. However, before going out and purchasing that suspension lift and a set of mud terrain tires, 
Establish the type of travel you plan to do most frequently and make the appropriate upgrades based on your needs. Last, have fun. If you're not having fun while enjoying the backcountry, then something is wrong. 4x4 adventure travel and overlanding are experiences you will always remember and when possible, share with family and friends. Over the last 15 plus years, my family has joined me on adventures throughout the US as it's a passion I've wanted to share so that someday, my children will want to do the same with their children. The point is to get out there and have fun while exploring a natural world responsibly and adhering to tread lightly and leave no trace principles. Keep these considerations in mind for those of you who are new to vehicle-based adventure, as well as those who are experienced in your travels. You can never stop learning, and at the end of the day, knowledge will be a far greater asset when the going gets tough than a vehicle with all the latest sparkles. Are you looking for the perfect fitting, fully customizable pop-up truck camper for your next adventure? Then look no further than the selection from four-wheel campers. From classic slide-in, bed top, and flatbed configuration designs, four-wheel campers has the setup you need. With extensive available custom options and precision built in Woodland, California, four-wheel campers has been providing quality equipment for the outdoor community since 1972. For more information on the pop-up camper you've been looking for, then pop on over to fourwheelcampers.com. That's F-O-U-R wheelcampers.com. Exploring Eastern Tajikistan. Words by Karen Marika Viss. Photos by Cohen Wubbles. The Pamir Mountains in Tajikistan offer many incredible overlanding opportunities, and so we set out to drive a loop in the country's southeastern corner. As this passed right along the Chinese border, it was a question of how far we'd get. The challenge was on. Leaving Kyrgyzstan, a thin layer of ice on a stream betrayed that summer was over, even though it was only mid-September. Nonetheless, under a bright blue sky, hot sun rays streamed through the open windows as the land cruiser was slogging up the 14,000-foot Kizilart Pass. In an overwhelmingly silent and empty world of red-brown mountains and, in the distant snow-capped peaks, a solitary stone Marco Polo sheep marked the pass. A barrier marked the border with Tajikistan, a handful of stone shacks in the middle of nowhere. In one of them, an officer sat behind his desk, using a ruler to draw vertical lines on a fresh page in the ledger in which all travelers' passports and visa details were registered. Did we carry any drugs? Did we have a dog on board? Children? Three times, no. The uniformed officer walked over to the land cruiser, peeked inside, and spotted money bills from various countries pinned on the wall. He handed us a five Simone bill. To add to your collection, he offered. In return, he asked if we had a bit of laundry powder for him. We had. Our passports and temporary importation documents for the land cruiser were stamped and we were free to enter Tajikistan. Tajikistan in a nutshell. Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Tajikistan, also known as the Stans, together formed Central Asia. The region was inhabited by nomadic peoples until the Soviet Union annexed the entire area around 1920, and largely eradicated most of the traditional ways of life. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, all five countries gained independence around 1990, 
Tajikistan is the poorest, with about 40% of its population living below the poverty line. About 10 million people live there, and the country is sparsely populated with 176 people per square mile. Tajikistan's main attraction for travelers are its wilderness and remoteness, particularly the Pamir Mountains, which encompass the eastern part of the country. With altitudes of 14,700 feet and higher, it is dubbed, like the Tibetan highlands, the roof of the world. As we struggled on the washboarded road heading south, a high fence on our left cut through the land, marking the border with China. We set up camp along the vast turquoise Karakul Lake, created by a meteorite impact about 10 million years ago. With the engine turned off, silence reigned except for the pulsating sound of the Coleman burner as we tried to boil water for tea. At 12,800 feet, that was easier said than done. The adjacent lakeside village also bore the name of Karakul and was the only settlement between the border and the town of Murgab, 125 miles away. Homestay was written in large letters on a wall and the village had one guest house, Kum's shop. While they had electricity and solar panels, the homes lacked running water. Women were walking back and forth with buckets to various pumps in the village. Children waved enthusiastically. Hello, they shouted, and were elated when we returned their greeting. Murgab The road to Murgab consisted of reasonable tarmac, except for one long, heavily damaged stretch that consisted of washboard, including on the 15,270-foot Akbaital Pass, called White Horse, the Land Cruiser struggled and Cohen continuously switched between first and second gear in an attempt to minimize the ruthless vibrations that threatened to shake us to pieces. Late afternoon found us in Murgab. It was Sunday and all the shops were closed. Buying a SIM card and groceries had to wait, but the gas station was open and had diesel. Fortunately, water pumps worked 24-7, so we could fill up the water tank. We camped in the fields just outside the village and enjoyed the view of the imposing 24,757-foot white-peaked Mujagata in the distance. The town of whitewashed houses stretched along the foot of the slope, the most sheltered corner of the valley. As we strolled the dusty streets, we passed homes with wooden or metal doors and decorated ironwork above them. If they had no glass, windows were covered with plastic or cardboard. Some people brightened up their dry, bare living environment with colorful drawings on the walls or had planted trees and plants, fenced off with wire mesh to keep the animals out. Large packs of dogs quietly roamed the town and were fed by the inhabitants, who put their leftover food in bowls made of discarded tires. Some alleys were blocked off with large cobblestones to ensure they remained car-free. There were few cars to begin with. In fact, the majority were wrecks that, we believe, were being stripped down bit by bit for parts. However, the handful of cars that did drive around caused a lot of dust in the alleys, and one man was throwing water on the street to keep the dust down. Along the edge of town, the bazaar consisted of a collection of containers and a parking lot. On Monday, not much was open at half past ten, but I could buy enough food to last for a couple of days, and we left town. The plan was to drive a loop southeast from the town, passing right along the Chinese border. The wind howled across the plains as we headed south. In the nearby hamlet of Kona Kurgan, we were intrigued by a cemetery with graves in the shape of beehives. 
Many of the graves had collapsed and lay open. Houses were hidden from view by high walls, and we wondered if the walls were protection against the wind. The people lived in mind-blowing desolation, and we wondered how they survived. Tea and Bread Disintegrating asphalt and heavy trucks plying to China had resulted in deeply eroded tracks. Other stretches consisted of sharp stones or pits filled with sand so soft it felt as if we were driving into a bowl of powdered sugar. As soon as the road surface turned into washboard, we opted for the dozens of side tracks that cut through the flat landscape. A solitary white building came into view. Two women sat on a sun-warm bench in front of it. When we put our hands up in a greeting, they waved back and made a gesture of drinking tea. Why not? We turned around and only then read the letters Stolovaya, Russian for a canteen-style basic restaurant, written on the building in faded paint. This was not a place for a buffet-style lunch, but the friendly women earned a few pennies by selling tea and dumplings. Mother Korajashi, spelled according to my interpretation of her pronunciation, was toothless, but when daughter Tashbubu laughed, we saw she sported gold teeth. In a bare room, we took a seat on a raised platform with rugs on it. As is the custom in this corner of the world, we took off our shoes and sat on the rugs around a plastic tablecloth. The women cooked on an open fire, and Tashbubu put a pot of green tea before us with a bowl of sugar cubes, a plate with dumplings, a basket of bread rolls, and a bowl of butter. After we ate, Korajachi beckoned me to follow her. She had a deformed foot and walked with a terrible limp, leaning on a stick. In another room stood a loom, low to the ground, on which weaving is done while sitting. She was working on a colorful narrow band, about ten inches wide. In a corner lay a pile of woven cloth, and when everything was complete, the pieces would be sewn together into a rug. At least that was my understanding of her explanation in Tajik. About three miles down the road, we passed a building, home to some Chinese, judging by a sign on the wall, and the equipment suggested that they were mining or were going to mine here. We came across a deep, wide hole that was not the result of mining, but of a meteorite, according to my travel guide. A meteorite impact may sound exciting. However, here the result was simply a massive hole in the ground. Back on washboard, we traversed a landscape with electric poles, partly standing, partly lying on the ground, wires hanging loose or having been removed entirely. On our left ran the border, and we realized that on the other side was the Chinese Karakul Lake. We had passed it in 2004 when traveling from northern Pakistan to Kashgar by bus, while the land cruiser stood parked in the Pakistani village of Sash, a mere 85 miles away as the crow flies. During that trip, we had been mesmerized by this vast, empty, barren, mountainous landscape, and we again found ourselves in awe, despite the state of the road. The bumping and rattling caused some piece of metal next to me to squeak. Cohen fiddled with a screwdriver to readjust my door, which helped for a little while. Another worrying noise followed, this time from somewhere behind our seats, and Cohen suspects something, with the iron bar across the rear doors, recently put there to prevent the bodywork from sagging, as it is weak from rust. Next, a piece broke off the hood, which I added to a new to-do list for when we would return to Mergab. Gotta love washboard and car repairs when overlanding in Tajikistan, that's for certain. Along the border. 
After some 95 miles, we arrived at a military base near the Chinese border. Our information had been ambiguous about the possibility of crossing. Some locals said we could, others said otherwise. And maybe that's how it worked. The answer could be yes or no, depending on the political situation. With the turmoil in the Xinjiang region across the border, our hopes weren't high. But then again, one can always try, right? A large yellow building stood out against the gray-brown landscape. One soldier on the roof kept an eye on the immediate surroundings, while another approached us. The smile on his face betrayed his interest in our journey, but after consultation with his boss, the answer was no. We were not allowed to continue. We were not even allowed to use the hot spring just steps away from where we were, and which was mentioned on iOverlander. The only option was to return to where we came from, and when out of sight of the base, we set up camp in the grassy fields by the river. Feeling sticky from a day of driving in dust, we wanted to go for a swim, but the river was too cold now that the sun had already disappeared behind the mountains. Instead, we poured water over each other's heads to wash our hair. The icy water cut right through our skulls, causing brief headaches, but we did feel better afterwards. Another loop. On the way back, we passed women washing clothes in the river. One of them was cleaning her carpet by stomping on it with high rubber boots. In the fields, men were mowing grass with a scythe. Another man was pulling small dry bushes from the ground, which were used for fire to cook on. My map showed another option to make a loop, and at Toktamish, we turned west across a good bridge over the river. However, right behind the bridge, the road was in danger of being swept away by the river. To reinforce it, Locals had turned the remains of old cars on their side and tied them together, thereby protecting the riverbank. It was as if we were driving through a painting, a feeling I had had since entering the country. This landscape was phenomenal, a vast color palette in all kinds of shades of red, brown, ochre, blue, and green. Rocks and slopes were rough and bare, and then suddenly the world would turn green with grassy fields and a blue stream. Red marmots sat on flat rocks, enjoying the warm sun rays, while herds of Marco Polo sheep abounded. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see the imposing animals. At Shakti, we parked the land cruiser and climbed up the mountain following a path. In a cave, we admired petroglyphs of a wild boar hunt in red ink, thousands of years old. They were discovered in 1958 by a group of Russian archaeologists who had sought refuge here during a storm. It hadn't been until the morning that they discovered the beautiful, well-preserved paintings. We had not been able to drive the loop as we had wanted. However, this unexpected visit to the cave was a good way to finish this loop and gain an introduction to the Pamir Mountains. Now knowing how ruthless the roads were and how empty the landscape, we made sure to prepare ourselves properly in Margab so we would be adequately equipped for our next adventure. Scouting the new Great Overland Route in the American Outback. Words and photos, Ben Easley. The 
Continental Divide, the Pacific Crest Overland Route, the California Crest Trail, and the Trans-America Trail are some of the great overland routes of North America. Each route spans over 1,500 miles and can take travelers anywhere from weeks to months to complete. The Aussies have long been famous for traveling incredibly remote tracks through the Australian outback, and perhaps the most famous and remote track on the continent is the 1,150-mile-long Canning Stock Route that traverses some of the most inhospitable and remote regions in the outback that can be reached by vehicle. Serious off-roaders consider it a rite of passage in Oz, but do we have an equivalent in the United States or even North America? In the American West, huge expanses of public land are generally open and accessible to the public. One of the best ways to measure remoteness is to look at the light pollution within a specific area. After all, light pollution is perhaps the best indicator of human inhabitants. The more remote you get, the less light pollution there is. And surprise, surprise, the darkest skies in the contiguous United States are all found west of the Rockies, in places like Montana, Idaho, Oregon, Nevada of course, South Dakota, and even parts of northeastern California and the eastern Sierra. Now we've got a general idea of where some of the remote regions are in the lower 48. At Overland Trail Guides, or OTG, we curate and develop highly detailed route guides across the United States, Canada, and Mexico. I wanted this route to go through Jarbridge, Nevada, which most resources consider the most remote location in the lower 48. From there, I began piecing together various OTG routes and other routes already in the public domain. After exhaustive research, I'd run through several iterations of the route before settling on a 2,000-mile loop through central and eastern Oregon, northern Nevada, northeastern California, and southern Idaho. The route would wind through spectacular scenery, like the sagebrush ocean of the Great Basin Desert, the rugged Owyhee Canyonlands, the spectacular volcanic fields of the Modoc Plateau, the eastern border of the Cascade Volcanic Arc, and the Snake River Plateau. Not only would the route feature a wide range of flora and topography, it would visit key outposts and remote hubs that helped build the American West, industrial towns like Winnemucca and Klamath Falls, all while crisscrossing some of the historic pioneer overland routes like the Lassen, Applegate, and Oregon Trails. Introducing the Great American Outback Trail. That's got a pretty cool ring to it, except for one nagging problem. In order to complete the route, I needed to figure out how to create a backcountry route connecting the Modoc Backcountry Discovery Trail in northeastern California to Bend in central Oregon. This proved easier said than done. Information on the back roads through this corridor of Oregon was sparse, but I did stumble across the Oregon Outback Trail, a popular bikepacking route that adventure bike motorcycles also use from time to time. There was still one significant problem. A large portion of the track from Klamath Falls to the Sprague River followed a bike path where vehicles were prohibited. My research kept running into one roadblock after another, but the dearth of information opened a door of opportunity. I'd have to head up to southern and central Oregon and scout the proposed connector myself. I used all of my research thus far to build a couple of different options through the back roads of Fremont Winneman National Forest and Deschutes National Forest to the north. The National Forest MVUM maps were a veritable patchwork of roads crisscrossing through the forest and mountains. I figured if I came across a large downed tree, gate, or washout, there'd be plenty of options for a reroute. After ample planning, I penciled in my scouting dates for late October, which typically isn't an issue in California, but inclement weather and snow tends to arrive earlier in Oregon. My plans were to head out from the Bay Area on a Thursday afternoon and camp somewhere near Mount Shasta, and then begin the scouting expedition just outside of Klamath Falls on Friday. The forecast was showing clear sunny skies on Thursday and Friday, with rain and possibly snow moving in on Friday night. 
The planned route was a hair under 250 miles and topped out at over 7,000 feet, as I'd planned to head over the summit to Paulina Lakes at Newbury National Volcanic Monument just outside of Bend. Definitely a bit of a risk with inclement weather rolling in. On Friday morning, I took my three-year-old pup Shasta, yes, that's her name too, for a quick morning walk, and then we packed up and hit Highway 97 headed for Comath Falls. The clouds soon broke, and a brilliant blue sky sat above the glass-like waters of Upper Klamath Lake. We began our ascent into the high country of the Fremont Winneman National Forest, only passing a single adventure biker on our travels. We traveled through the fir and pine forest until spitting out near the Sprague River, which is a bit of a transition zone between the sagebrush ocean of the high desert and the evergreen forests. Making fantastic time, we traveled through the hamlet of Fork Rock and visited Fort Rock State Park, eventually camping about 10 miles north at a dispersed campsite marked on I Overlander that is apparently popular with the Oregon Outback bikepacking crowd. The expedition was going better than I'd anticipated, but as the weather forecast predicted, the wind began to pick up and thick grey clouds suffocated the once blue skies. The wind would continue to howl throughout the night with periods of light precipitation. On Friday, we'd awake to giant snowflakes falling from the sky. The dirt around camp was muddy from the overnight rain and drizzle. Assessing the situation, I figured our best bet was to hit the road early and cover as much ground as possible in case the snow really began to dump. Luckily, time was on our side, as we'd covered a solid 150 miles on Friday. One of the major benefits of going out solo is setting your desired pace. As we steadily gained elevation, the pine and fir forest grew thicker, but so did the top layer of snow covering the dirt. Within 45 minutes, snow completely blanketed the ground, but in my side mirrors I could still see some dirt in my tire tracks. I'd planned a route along a secondary trail that climbed up the side of the mountain and over the summit to Paulina Lakes. As I ascended, the snow was getting deeper. My tire tracks were a solid white and the snow was probably six inches deep. If the rate of snowfall kept steady, I could be dealing with snowdrifts two to three feet deep later in the day. Not ideal, especially when traveling solo. Well, my plans would be thwarted twice. The original trail I'd planned to take over the summit grew narrower and narrower until baby pines began to appear in the middle of the trail. It seemed like the Forest Service no longer maintained this trail, despite the fact it showed up on the official Deschutes MVUM, or Motor Vehicle Use Map. I turned around, backtracking to a paved road that led to another dirt road over the mountain, except this time a massive 100-foot tall pine had fallen, completely blocking the road. On to plan C. We backtracked to the main forest road and continued north. In order to make it over to Paulina Lakes, we would take another trail that led over the summit, which appeared to be a primary forest road. The road was wide, and a large sign pointing up the mountain indicated the National Monument was ahead. A good sign this road wouldn't gradually dissipate into the forest like the previous trail had. The snow was getting noticeably deeper as I neared the summit. As we descended the mountain into Paulina Lakes, a thick fog began to develop. The wind picked up, as did the rate of snowfall. The Ram 3500 skidded from the snow onto the pavement, and it was slippery. Shortly thereafter, I pulled the vehicle into the parking lot of East Paulina Lake. The Ram registered 27 degrees Fahrenheit outside, but I'd guess it was in the low teens with the wind chill. The wind was howling, and the snow was coming down sideways as the storm roiled waves across the lake. I exited the vehicle for a quick minute, but after being pelted by the stinging snowflakes, I figured our best option was to head over to the visitor center at Westlake to get an updated weather forecast. The original forecast had indicated that the storm was supposed to break up around midday. I jumped back in the ram with Shasta and drove the couple of miles over to the visitor center, except it was closed. 
A few folks were piddling around West Paulina Lake as the wind didn't seem to be impacting this side of the park. Shasta indicated she'd been in the truck for far too long, and so I obliged and took her for a short walk along the lakeshore. We passed a man and his friend loading up into their Subaru and decided this might be my last opportunity to inquire about the weather with the visitor center closed. He indicated the forecast called for snow all day up in the mountains. Great. I was thinking about the wind whipping through the East Lake and the summit getting hammered with snow. I compared the planned route in Gaia GPS and it didn't seem like it was too much further to bend and only one section north of Paulina Lakes crossed some of the higher elevations. I was having second thoughts about heading back over the summit, fearing that we could become stuck. My new plan was to head up to the summit and check the conditions there. If things looked bleak, we'd turn around and take the pavement back down to Highway 97, but if it didn't, we'd press north to bend. The storm seemed to be sitting right in the crater of East Paulina Lake. We passed back through a second time while the wind approached gale force and the snow continued to fall. But as we neared the summit, dark, ominous clouds gave way to patches of blue sky and sunlight. The rate of snow continued to slow until it stopped altogether. The route on Gaia indicated we'd need to turn left shortly after the summit. I maneuvered the truck left onto a narrow trail with a steep downslope embankment on the passenger side of the vehicle. One immediately notices the extra width on smaller trails when driving a full-size vehicle like a Ram 3500. Normally, this wouldn't be much of an issue, but the snow was packed at a downslope along many sections of the trail. When you're in a 9,000 pound rig, you need to be extra mindful of the power of gravity in such situations. A set of fresh tire tracks helped put my mind at ease. Someone else was out on the trails and they'd helped to pack down the snow along the trail. Shasta and I picked our way down the tight mountain trail, traveling five to eight miles an hour for much of the trail. Several especially narrow exposed sections convinced me to put the vehicle in four low and proceed at a snail's pace until the trail widened once again. As we closed in on the primary forest road that would lead us into Bend, we came across a pair of dual sport motorbikes. We chatted for a quick minute, then I continued to the main road, where I encountered more folks camping and exploring the back roads. We were losing elevation and the snow began to dissipate as pine needles and dirt started to peek through the white stuff. I'd planned a solid two days to scout the route, but we'd made it to downtown Bend by early afternoon. The locals were out and about, milling through downtown on an October afternoon that felt more like January. What better way to celebrate a successful scouting expedition than with a warm meal and cold beer? And so that's what I did, leaving Shasta in the truck to watch me from the parking lot. You can learn more about the Great American Outback Trail by visiting www.overlandtrailguides.com. The route is planned to be released in March 2023. A route-only version will be made available to the general public for free, while a more detailed GPX file containing hundreds of discovery points and campsites will be available to subscribers. Just passing through. Words and photos. Andrea Ledwell. I needed this. I looked over the list of carefully compiled items to take on my trip and started to feel a bit overwhelmed. Maybe I should just scrap this all together? The thought of making a solo camping trip somewhere had been in my mind for over a year now. I didn't have a particular destination in mind. I just knew in every fiber of my being that I needed to get away from things in search of some solitude and quiet. Yet the ever-present voice that women often hear internally started saying otherwise. I'm needed at home. I really shouldn't be doing this right now. 
What if I go somewhere for a few days and something happens? Insert all the made-up scenarios your mind tells you in an effort to make you feel guilty for doing something good for yourself. Just then, my two dogs started scrapping with each other. The small, lingering headache I had been battling all day decided to make its presence fully known, and my coffee spilled on the kitchen counter due to the chaos. It was then that I told the internal voice to shut the hell up and take a back seat on this one. I made up my mind. I was going. Living in Texas, I have so many incredible places to explore, and it was hard to narrow down my options. It was November, and of course the season determined which destinations would be appropriate. After some deliberation, I decided the destination for my first solo camping adventure would be Seminole Canyon State Park in West Texas. I had visited the park years ago, but didn't have a chance, or the time, to fully check it out. From Houston, it would be an estimated seven-hour drive, but it would be worth it to say adios to the concrete jungle for a little while. I took another look at my list, which had all the makings of a CVS receipt, and decided to toss it in the trash. I didn't need or want things to be complicated. I needed simplicity. I needed the solitude, quiet, and peace that nature so readily provides. I began again. This time, I took a minimalist approach to what I would bring. Planning for an adventure doesn't necessarily have to be a complex ordeal, but it is vital to be prepared. The days before my trip passed slowly. Isn't that always the case when adventure is on the horizon? Finally, the day arrived. I had carefully packed the Ford Bronco, an Everglades edition, like Tetris pieces the night before with my camping, hiking gear, mountain house meals, jet boil, water, and layers of clothes. I've learned the hard way while exploring Texas. I started the morning bright and early with a good cup of coffee, a shower, and then said goodbye to my family. It was time to be on my way. I turned on some 90s tunes and, I'm not embarrassed to say, did a lot of singing and car dancing to help pass the blahness of driving through the concrete jungle. After a couple of restroom stops, and before I realized it, I was entering Comstock in Valverde County, Texas. I had made it to my destination. It was time to check in at the visitor center and find my campsite. After chatting with the park ranger for a little bit, I was told that the last tour for the weekend would be starting at three, and I was just in time to catch it. The guided tour would include a short hike to the Fate Bell Shelter, which showcased some of the country's most spectacular rock art. I was all in. I made a quick run back to the Bronco to put on my hiking boots and was back right when the tour started. When making our descent into the canyon, we encountered a large 17-foot bronze statue directly behind the visitor center titled The Maker of Peace. It was created in 1994 by native Texan artist Bill Worrell. According to Worrell, the statue is a personification of the white-tailed deer, signifying the shaman's spiritual leadership, while the antlers represent wisdom, maturity, and regeneration, which is consistent with the lower Pecos culture. As we made our way into the bottom of the canyon, the guide pointed out the fossils, millions of years old, beneath our feet. Sure enough, they were all around us. A reminder of life which existed long before us, permanently embedded in the rock beneath us. The canyon overhang was to the right of us. As we made our way up the canyon, I was thinking to myself of the people who inhabited this land about 4,000 years ago, which were named the Lower Pecos people because of the region. 
and were hunters and gatherers. The canyon overlook provided the perfect shelter. In actuality, the archaeological sites in the park spanned 13,000 years of Native American life and was designated a National Historic Landmark in 2021 by the National Park Service, United States Department of the Interior. Looking along the back wall, I could make out some faint rock art with a reddish sort of pigment. It was hard to decipher in its depiction, but it was very intriguing. Known as the Pecos River style, these pictographs were the oldest known art form in Texas and possibly the Americas. When I looked at the ground where it met the canyon wall, I could detect some sort of fibers protruding from underneath the pebbles and dirt. When inquiring about them to the guide, we were told that these fibers were from baskets, sleeping mats, and sandals that the Lower Pecos people wove from the sotol plant. The largest panel of pictographs awaited us at the end of the shelter, a spectacular mural depicting some sort of ceremonial gathering. There were four figures represented, one with antlers and what looked to be outstretched wings each facing one of the four directions, forming what looked to be some sort of circle. It was breathtaking. There were different colors used in this mural as opposed to only the reddish color contained in the others. As our tour wound down, we made it back to the visitor center and it was time to find my campsite. It wasn't hard to locate and I had my tent set up in no time. Up next would come dinner. I unpacked and assembled my jet foil and prepared Mountain House's fettuccine alfredo with chicken. Soon I was kicked back, enjoying a hot meal, complete with a glass of red wine to watch the sunset over the desert landscape. The day had provided me with a taste of the solitude I'd been seeking. The next day, I'd be getting up early to prepare breakfast and head out on the Rio Grande River Trail for a day of hiking and adventure. I awoke to the alarm on my phone, alerting me it was time to start the day. I purposely set it to wake me before sunrise. One of the things that really makes my soul smile is watching God's handiwork, as my grandmother called it, on full display. It never fails to disappoint. I took out and assembled my jet boil again and prepared a mountain house breakfast skillet and coffee. It was a beautiful morning, and although a bit on the cold side, I knew things would warm up quickly along my hike. The desert could be tricky like that, and I learned from past experiences of exploring such environments that this meant it was crucial to be prepared. After breakfast, I started working on assembling the items in my hiking pack that I'd bring along for the day. This included lunch, some protein bars, plenty of water, my machete for safety, and a park map. It was time to head to the trailhead and have some fun. As I embarked on the trail, I soon picked up a rhythm and came to the intersection of the Canyon Rim Trail. This was not in my plans, but something told me to choose this route to see what I would stumble upon. The trail was not difficult or strenuous, but the rocky terrain definitely demanded attention or you'd lose your footing. There were a couple of times I got distracted from the scenic views that I nearly stumbled. I'm not sure what it is about the desert landscape that captivates me like it does, it's almost like I'm in a foreign land where no life could possibly exist, yet everywhere you look offers a contrasting perspective. The Canyon Rim Trail did not disappoint. It wound around the edge of the canyon and provided breathtaking views. It was a few miles in that the sun started to make its presence known and reminded me of why layering is vital in places such as this. I took a small break, long enough to catch my breath, 
took off my jacket and have some water. Staying hydrated is essential while out exploring. I continued onward. It was somewhere along the middle part of my hike, surrounded by desert flowers, butterflies, and dragonflies, that I began to think of my father. I lost my dad back in August, and my thoughts started to turn to him. I owe my love and appreciation for the outdoors to him. Memories of being a little girl again, out with my father in a fishing boat on some obscure little river in my home state of Mississippi came to mind. I knew he was here with me. I smiled and carried on. The trail eventually met up with the Rio Grande, and I found myself in sheer awe as I peeked over the rim of the canyon to see the green water below me. It was here that I decided to stop and have lunch. With a view like this, how could I not? I found a nice spot to rest and gazed at the river below me. I took a moment to reflect on my adventure so far. This place was so full of mystery and left traces of life left behind for people to explore. These elements were literally under my feet at the bottom of the Fate Bell shelter the previous day on the pictographs contained on the canyon walls all around me. It was in all of these reminders that I felt I wasn't alone. My thoughts then switched to my father. I was still grieving him. His passing was sudden, and there were so many things that were left unsaid. Just then, I saw a butterfly pass in front of me. I decided to just have a chat with my dad. I told him I was doing all right, and that I missed him so much, and that I was especially thinking about him on this trip. Given the choice not to live in Mississippi, my father would likely have chosen to be a mountain man, so I wasn't sure he'd be too fond of the rugged, harsh Chihuahuan desert topography. However, one thing that always connected us was our love of nature. I knew he'd appreciate the beauty here. Isn't it funny? We live our lives always looking forward, anticipating the next grand thing. Out here, you take it one step at a time. There's no other place than here. There's no other time than now. Nature was always teaching me, and I would forever be an eager student. I resumed my hike. I began to notice that periodically along the trail, there were benches. Normally, I would be so focused on the hike that I wouldn't stop to take a breather and would just keep pushing through. For some reason this time, it was different. I wasn't in a hurry. I had no place to be and no certain time to get there. I stopped at every bench to take time to reflect and just be. Some of the benches were surrounded by desert flowers that reminded me that life still thrives in the most barren of places. The benches were in the middle of nowhere and came unexpectedly right when I began to tire a little. I soaked it all in and was thankful for the reminder to stop and just breathe. During the last leg of my hike, I felt a little wave of sadness come over me. There is such a peace and calmness to the soul that is found by being in nature. I didn't want it to end. I wanted to marinate in the solitude a bit longer and knew that tomorrow I'd be heading back home. Before I realized it, the trail met back up with the Rio Grande River Trail I'd originally set out to hike, and I knew I'd be back at camp before long. There was one last bench I came across. I chuckled to myself when I saw it. 
It was under a canopy, but a fellow hiker who'd come before me moved the bench at an offset position so it would be more completely covered by the shade. I decided to sit once again, this time in the shade, but not really under the canopy, and I thought to myself how this might resemble Forrest Gump sitting on one of his benches while the camera zooms out as he's looking off into the distance. At least I had comfortable shoes. I'd spent the entire day out on the trails and in the desert. I was all alone, but I never felt alone. And the time passed by so quickly, I felt a sense of contentment. I did this by myself. I didn't need the assistance of anyone. I began to think about the lives people lead, women in particular, and how I wished more women could experience this sort of thing and not be intimidated by the thought of it. We are so much stronger and more courageous than we credit ourselves with being. Although this trip was short, it provided just the right amount of relief and quiet to disconnect from society for a while and reconnect with myself. It didn't require a bunch of fancy, expensive, complicated gear, and I loved that. In the end, it was about me and nature. I made it back to my campsite and prepared dinner just in time to enjoy the sunset with a nice glass of red wine. What an amazing experience. The world didn't come to an end because I decided to leave for a few days, and my internal battery was fully charged now with a peace in my soul. My trip to Seminole Canyon further solidified my idea that we all leave something behind from our time on this earth and that we are all just passing through. We get to decide what that means to us. Tired of unreliable tie-down straps that break or come loose while you're on the trail? Put those days in the rear view with RollerCam, the ultimate solution for securing your cargo. RollerCam's patented design features a unique rolling pin mechanism that keeps your load securely in place no matter what lies on the roads ahead. Made with a durable brass roller pin, dual stainless steel springs, and a body cast from high-strength Zamac 5, RollerCam can withstand the toughest conditions. Why slide when you can roll? RollerCam. Project Himalayan, Outdoor by Force 2022 Royal Enfield Himalayan Adventure Motorcycle by Frank Ledwell. In 2016, I wrote about the experience of finally convincing my wife not only to allow me to ride a motorcycle, but also to purchase one. At the time, I had noted this newfound freedom as, quote, an event nearly equal to the parting of the seas, end quote. It was nirvana and proof that some things are truly better late than never. Next, I completed two days of off-road training with Bill Dragoo and his experienced team of instructors at DART, Dragoo Adventure Rider Training, at www.billdragoo.com. 
A number of varied writing experiences has since fanned the flames of a fledgling two-wheel passion. In late 2022, I took ownership of Royal Enfield Himalayan, now with ABS, and a luck braking system. I had tested the non-ABS model back in 2018, shortly after its public release. At the time, I was impressed with its nimble nature and could appreciate its low cost and simplicity in a world where technology and power have driven the evolution of vehicles of all sorts. Since that time, the bike has become a canvas upon which I have spent six months enhancing in an effort to maximize the Himalayan's potential, all while being conscious not only to go too far and lose the bike's Spartan character. My focus for the project was first on safety. I wanted quality gear appropriate for how I planned to ride. I also wanted modifications to not only enhance its performance, but to protect vulnerable hearts during the inevitable drops common to riding in difficult terrain. Last, I wanted to select general use items such as luggage, navigational equipment, and aids that would also serve duty in my four-wheel adventures. Safety gear. In keeping my promise to my wife, I would not skimp on safety gear after earning her trust to pursue two-wheeled adventure. I prefer US-made gear when the budget allows. And Aerostitch's Darien jacket, mated to their 81 light pants, have continued to prove themselves as an excellent setup for competent protection. Zippers run the length of each leg on the pants, making them easy to put on and take off. They make a great overpant when layering, and are perfectly functional as a primary pant with strategically placed, easily removable armor. The Darien jacket is the quintessential piece of gear for long trips where extreme adventure requires durability. While it doesn't breathe quite as well as the Klim induction jacket I own, it is far more robust and built specifically to my frame with the unique single layer construction. Strategically placed reflective material keeps you visible to other drivers and its overall design is timeless. Both Aerostitch items are worth the cost of admission. I continue to use Klim's Inversion Pro gloves with Gore Windstopper wrapped in premium leather for their excellent windproofing, durability, and comfortable fit. Integrated impact foam protects knuckles and fingers while providing additional insulation. I also use Velomachi's Speedway gloves, which use buttery soft deer skin in the palms for maximum control. With their Highland goatskin backs and TPR rubber fingers, they look and feel great. CD's Adventure Gore-Tex boots are rugged enough to withstand a zombie apocalypse while still allowing the ability to walk comfortably. There are stronger boots still, but I prefer the dexterity they provide. The AX9 carbon fiber helmet from AGV is not only aesthetically beautiful with its Italian designed carbon fiber weave, but is also incredibly comfortable while diffusing heat via the helmet's strategically placed bending system that directs internal airflow where the rider needs it most. The integrated pinlock face shield makes it easy to transition between clear and smoke colored lenses without having to replace the entire shield. Modifications and enhancements. While the Himalayan is a capable bike in stock form, there are a few aftermarket enhancements that in my opinion should be done. Fortunately, the saddle in the 2022 model has been updated and is much better than the earlier versions. Well-placed foam padding provides adequate comfort for the long haul. When paired with a pair of Moto Skivvy's padded shorts, I see no reason to swap out the stock saddle. The engine and the front rear brake master cylinder do need protection. For the engine, I decided on GVUSA's TN9050 engine guard, which looks great with its matte black finish. One inch tubing wraps around the engine and makes a nice mounting point for a set of Denali auxiliary light crash bar mounts holding a pair of Morimoto 4-banger LED pod lights. 
I chose the Mori Modis as they provide exceptional visibility and vision, day or night, at a very low amp draw. The front and rear brake cylinders are protected with guards from SRC Moto, built from 304 stainless steel for maximum protection and corrosion resistance. I upgraded the turn signals with LED bulbs from superbrightleds.com. LEDs draw far less power, leaving more reserve for other accessories. They are also significantly brighter than OEM. Coupled with this is an upgraded Cyclops H4 LED headlight bulb that produces a far superior low and high light beam versus the stock headlamp. I also purchased a 12 volt power outlet with a USB charging hub from a local cycle gear shop. It mounts easily to the handlebar and is fused and wired directly to the battery. For hand protection, I added Barkbuster's hand guards. Built using VPS plastic with an aluminum frame, I'm confident my hands in the clutch and brake levers will be protected in the event of a fall. Double take mirror were a no-brainer given they're nearly indestructible and much clearer than the factory units. The housings are also guaranteed for life. Down low, the stock foot pegs provide inadequate surface area, so I upgraded to Pivot Pegs MK4 foot pegs, built from aerospace stainless steel with a unique multi-directional grip pattern. Due to the Himalayan smaller presence within the adventure motorcycling community, the number of aftermarket companies is limited. As such, the final modifications come from Hitchcock's motorcycles out of the UK. Hitchcock's produces a variety of accessories for the Himalayan. One of the most valuable improvements I have made to date has been to upgrade the stock windshield to Hitchcock's tall windshield. Designed to bolt on without cutting or adjustment, the tall windshield provides an additional 6 inches of wind deflection. Your neck will thank you when traveling at highway speeds. A larger cargo carrier, also from Hitchcock's, provides more surface area for top-mounted luggage than the scant stock offering. Adventure Gear With the mechanical and bike protection upgrades completed, the last area of attention was luggage. I wanted to incorporate thoughtful storage onto the bike for extended travel with a focus on versatility between my two-wheeled and four-wheeled adventures. Wolfman Luggage Fit the Bill is proven, versatile luggage. The reputation for high-quality storage solutions for all adventure motorcycles made this an easy choice. Their rolly bags attached to the B-Base WP Unrack system is not only thoughtfully designed, but also eliminates the need for pannier mounts while allowing the entire system to interchange from bike to bike with the release of a few straps. It's an incredibly intelligent product and the rolly bags are waterproof and durable with the added advantage of providing excellent protection to the rear of the bike in a the fall. They are also great for gear storage on my Lexus GX460. While some riders prefer to not use a tank bag, given they can be known to restrict rider movement when standing, I still like having one to stash a few essentials. Giant Loop Motorcycle Gear produces packing systems for a variety of vehicle-based adventures. Their Diablo tank bag delivers six liters of storage that blends nicely with the contours of the Himalayan's fuel tank and attaches with the universal harness and straps. The bag can easily unzip from the harness, allowing it to be set aside for fueling or removed altogether when not in use. Their Armadillo bag is a lightweight, expedition-ready utility bladder that provides safe, extra fuel storage. It also crosses over nicely to my four-wheeled adventures and is available in sizes ranging from one gallon to five gallons. For navigation, I chose Garmin's Tread GPS. While Garmin produces several motorcycle-specific GPS units, the Tread differs in that it offers built-in radio communications via VHF frequencies, and it pairs with my old Cine 20S Bluetooth headset. 
I also appreciate the detailed maps utilizing U.S. Forest Service roads and motor vehicle use maps for full-sized 4x4s and UTVs. The tread also comes preloaded with public land boundaries and a variety of other valuable features. You can check out issue 40 of Outdoor by 4 for a more thorough review of the Garmin tread. The stock 41mm forks with 200mm travel have proven adequate across a wide variety of terrain, but I will keep an open mind as time goes on. Same for the rear. There are upgrades available, but so far, the original equipment unit is still working well enough. The Indian-made SEAT Grip XL 21-inch front and 17-inch rear tires with their aggressive angular block pattern have surprised me with their superior grip on wet and dry surfaces. They are wrapped around traditional spoke wheels with tubes. Overall impressions of the Himalayan. In 2021, the Himalayan continued its evolution with switchable ABS as standard equipment. It is finally earning a hard-fought reputation for reliability, simplicity, and overall capability. I have no doubt this is an excellent bike for folks new to the world of adventure riding or anyone looking for a bike that's nimble and comfortable. While the air-cooled 411cc longshaft single-cylinder motor is underpowered compared to its larger peers in the adventure motorcycling segment, the bike's low-end torque provides enough oomph when needed to reverse technical terrain. Electronic fuel injection eliminates the need to make adjustments and keeps the engine running smoothly at high elevations. I'm 5 foot 9 inches tall and I find the cockpit comfortable with ample room to keep my knees happy in a long ride. When standing while riding off pavement, the geometry fits me well with minimal hunching over the bars. Taller riders, however, may prefer bar risers. An aluminum skid plate and steel center stand comes standard with the Himalayan, though I'll admit the center stand requires a ton of effort to engage. Still, at $5,300, the Royal Enfield Himalayan provides a high level of enjoyment every time I hop on the saddle and crank it up. No bike is perfect. However, the Himalayan is an exceptional ride and attainable cost of entry and continues to fuel my two-wheel passion. Here's what's coming up in issue 49 of Outdoor by 4 magazine. Jared Foster takes us on an adventure in Ruidoso, New Mexico. Jason Sakurai has us live in the van life. David Hilgendorf shares a variety of outdoors adventure experiences. And Frank Ledwell discusses a Nissan Frontier Pro 4X truck. Also, be sure to visit the Outdoor by 4 website at www.outdoorx4.com regularly for new tips, reviews, and stories and join our e-newsletter to stay in the loop on the latest from Outdoor by 4. You can also follow Outdoor by 4 in the adventures of our staff and contributors on Instagram and Facebook at, at OutdoorX4, on TikTok and YouTube at, at OutdoorX4 Magazine, and by following the hashtag OutdoorX4. Until our next issue, we wish each of you the happiest of adventures. <laughs>